The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we give thanks to you for what you have done to send Christ and by his shed blood to set us free. We just sang of that and praised you in song and now we praise you in word and we say thank you. You were good and kind and gracious to do so. To save us like this. And Lord, I pray then that you would be gracious and kind again now in this moment as we move forward to open our eyes and help us to see a little more of how you have saved us and how you are saving us. How you are setting us free. Help us to think about that and to understand a little more about it and to live in it then and enjoy it and enjoy you. Lord, towards that end, I pray that you would give clarity to my words and my thinking so that I would clearly express the truth. And I ask you to give attention and clarity to the thinking and listening of those here sitting before me and those who will hear it elsewhere so they can hear the truth from you and can process it well in your spirit, then I ask, will be sent to apply it. Would you send him, Father? Would you send him, and as has already been prayed, would you, would you instruct God the Spirit, who is always thoroughly pleased to do your will, Would you, Father, instruct God the Spirit to illumine God the Son to our minds and conform us to His image, cause us to walk in His freedom, make us a people who are to the praise of His glory. We need God the Spirit's work for that. So, Father, would you send Him? Would you give Him free reign here in this room in our hearts? But I pray this because I want to see I want to see you honored here and I want to see us as a people, myself, my friends here. I want to see us walk in the joy that you intend for us, your people. And so I pray for your help and ask you to accomplish it. Build up your people here, I pray, Father, Son, and Spirit and be honored in our midst. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen. So we return to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. We'll be focusing on one small portion of the larger section that we covered last week. If you were here last week, last Sunday, you'll recall that we stepped into the first 11 verses of this chapter, noting that they are a beginning to the discussion of the whole rest of the chapter where Paul turns to discuss the issue of the resurrection. Paul's come to these these verses now through chapters 11 to 14, in which he's been discussing, essentially, the body of Christ at worship, particularly in 12 to 14, how God has given to each person the body gifts, and we are to use them in love for the building up of the whole body. He's come through that discussion and then came to chapter 15, and as we saw in verse 1, returns back to the gospel. 
tying it back to where he started back at the beginning of the book. He says in 15.1, Now let me remind you of or, or make known to you once again the gospel. This message. So he's, he's tying back, elaborating on the gospel, using it to launch in the following verses into this discussion about the resurrection. But we're not going to go into those verses this morning. We're going we're to kind of stay here in this section and look at verses particularly 1 and 2 and focus on something there in that little part of the beginning of chapter 15. And we're going to tie it back a little bit to something in chapter 1. Not much. Mostly we're going to be in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and really to be more specific, at the end of 1 and the beginning of 2. Paul there writes about how the church there is, Christians are standing in the gospel by which you are being saved if we hold tight to it. We're going to think about that. Those those phrases right there. Because Christians need to be saved. Christians, uh, you, if, if you're a Christian, you, me, Christians need to be saved, which right away I, I think should be a sentence that tells you that I don't mean saved in the sense of become a Christian. If you're a Christian, you already are a Christian. I mean that Christians, people who actually are already Christians, need a saving work of God to be done in their lives. Today, tomorrow, and ongoing through life. And it's a work that everybody in the world needs to, needs to have happen in their lives, but we need it also, and we actually can be saved in this way because we are saved already. The work that we need and that we can know as we take our stand in the gospel because we have taken a stand in the gospel. That's what we're going to be talking about today, focusing especially on this saving work that we all need and can happen to us as Christians. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 4 of chapter 15, but first I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 30, because it gives us a couple of words that I'm going to use as we look at chapter 15. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 1, 30, and then 15, 1 to 4. And as I do, be listening for this main point. Here's the main point that I'm going to unpack this morning. God is saving us today... By the gospel of his grace, as we hold tight to it. That's the main point. Listen forward in the verses. 1 Corinthians 1.30. He, that's God, he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, that is, our righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 15 verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I'll stop there. So my main point this morning, I hope you hear it in those verses. I'm just trying to state what's there. God is saving us today. 
by the gospel of his grace if we hold tight to it. It's the main point. I'm going to make three observations that are all kind of related to that point. Three points this morning, not just two. Switching things up. Here's the first one. A Christian is one who has been saved by taking a stand in the gospel that Paul preaches. A Christian is one who has been saved by taking a stand in the gospel that Paul preaches. 15 verse 1. He reminds him of the gospel that he's preached. And since I looked at this last week, I'm, I'm going to be a little condensed here. I'll be a, a, little, a little tighter, a little more brief on this section. But I do need to, to clarify this so that everything else that I say this morning is not misunderstood. It's all built on this reality. So we need to look at this. Verse 1, the, the word gospel, it literally means good news. If, you, if you're not aware of that, then, then listen to the good news. And if you are, listen to it again. It'll bless you. But some here aren't. So there, there's good news here. When he uses the word gospel, there's, there's a message, news. Which is good because it's a message about what God has done, not describing what you are to do. It's not listing out a bunch of things that we are to perform so as to be right with God. It's a message, it's news about what God has done. And he states it in just a few words in verses 3 and 4, really condensed version. The good news is that Christ, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Christ died for our sins, he says in verse 3. He was buried, he really died, he was dead. And he was buried. And then he rose again out of the grave. Just like God said would happen according to the scriptures. That message is the news about, to use chapter 1's language, news about what the world would regard as, as folly, as craziness. You're, you're telling me that there's a Savior here who is dead. That's no, that's no saving work. He's dead. And then you're telling me that actually he came back to life? That's crazy talk. People don't come back to life. The world regards it as folly, as, as insanity, but as it says, God says, actually, that's the wisdom and the power of God. That is how I save. It is an amazing work. This is the gospel, that God, the Son, came to earth, we sing about it, we know, we celebrate this time of year, born in a cattle stall. God, born in a cattle stall. We way sanitize that. Ever been in a cattle stall? Ever been in a pig sty? Ever been where animals live? It is not the third, war, third floor at the women's hospital. Totally different. God became a man in that setting to communicate something. It's to communicate his humility, his stooping, to become a man, and not just any man, but to become a man in that setting, to become a servant, to serve humanity. But not just a man, not just a servant, but to serve us as a man by, as it says, dying for our sins. And to be clear, we have sins that need to be atoned for. The Bible is extremely clear, though it is not in vogue today to call us wicked. The Bible is extremely clear that we human beings, dressed up wearing a tie and a suit, wicked Evil from birth. 
and before a holy God rightfully standing under His condemnation. And all that is due us and all that is coming to us from our birth is wrath. But glory, glory. God became a man. God became a servant. God went to the cross to die for our sin, to take on Himself the wrath that you, individual person, not humanity, you, individual person, deserved. Still do deserve, in fact. God came to earth to die for our sin, as chapter 1, verse 30 said. God gave us life in Christ by making Him our righteousness. What He means by that is that we, standing before a holy judge, need to be right before the law. And we are not. And so God made this one, this Christ, our righteousness. Like like a robe of cleanliness, of purity, of rightness before the law that we can then put on so that we stand in front of the judge and he sees clean. Not because of what's in my heart, but because of who I'm clothed in. Whom I am clothed in. Christ is my righteousness. Christ can be your righteousness. If we grasp the magnitude of our problem, the fact that God would act to save, to provide for one like me, like you, this thing that we so desperately need and can never, ever, ever hope to earn in our own behavior, that God would provide that for us, should drop us to our knees in thanksgiving and cause us to run to it and grab it and put it on. To take a stand in that gospel. As he says in chapter 15. The, the grammar there of that, of that word is, is an, a, a commitment A taking of a stand that that happens and it affects everything else. It changes all the rest of the environment from that point on. There is a standing in it. As he says later, believing it. Taking it and clinging to it and holding it and never letting go of it. A Christian is one who's been saved not just by hearing about this, but by taking a stand in this message about what God has done. Grasping it and taking it to yourself. That's the message. So are you a Christian? I have to ask that because there are always people sitting in churches who are not Christians. Always. I sat in churches for a large part of my life not a Christian. Maybe you sit here a little bit like me because it was your upbringing. And when my family went to worship services, we did not go to a synagogue. We did not go to a mosque. We went to a church. Therefore, I am a Christian, right? No. Uh Uh-uh. This passage talks about taking a stand in, that is, believing and trusting the gospel. I, I knew it. You may know it. But knowing it does not make you a Christian. Nor does being raised in the church, nor does having Christian parents make you a Christian. Intellectual understanding, it's not what I'm talking about. Nor am I talking about, listen carefully here, 
some sort of a calculated decision for Christ. I need to be very careful. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Because there are often people who sit in churches who have made a calculated decision for Christ, but are not Christians. Let me explain. Genuine salvation does surely understand this message, this news. Has to. God speaks to, deals with our minds so that we gain understanding of it before we embrace it. So it it is thoughtful, genuine faith is thoughtful, but it is not calculating. Genuine belief, a genuine grabbing hold of Christ is a lot more like a man who realizes that he is drowning in a raging, angry sea and he sees a life raft floating by him and thinks and realizes that is my only hope and he grabs it and grasps the side and climbs in. (sighs) He's thoughtful. He, He understands intellectually, I'm in a predicament. This is what it is. There's my only hope. I must have it. Which is very different than a man sitting before a list of investment opportunities, debating back and forth about which course of action, which investment would gain me the greatest benefit in the long run. Hmm. Jesus, something else. Um, I suppose Jesus. Do you see the difference there? The second man or woman boy, girl, is calculating. And the very calculating reveals that he does not understand the situation. To use Bible language, he is not under conviction of sin. Does not understand the desperate situation that he is in and how Christ is the only hope for it. And instead is weighing out the various options and decides in the end that, man, this is a little better, I guess. It's not saving faith. Saving faith need not always be emotionally desperate, like I portrayed it, but it is very clearly a moving to Jesus that is driven by conviction and a a conviction of sin and a conviction that that is my one and only hope. There is no, "Mm, mm, 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 I suppose, okay. Now, obviously, I can't analyze where you are, where you have been, how you've come to the place where you are from the pulpit here. But if you want to talk more about that, please talk more about that with me, with somebody else. But if you're thinking, as you're sitting here, that it was a little more of the calculating sort, then ask yourself, are you a Christian? May God convict you of your sin and leave you in utter despair. And then show you Christ who died for your sin to be your righteousness. Then may He drive you fleeing from His wrath, fleeing to this Jesus. Take your stand in Him. In that message of Christ crucified for sin, your only hope. Take your stand there. Believe. Trust Him. A Christian is one who's been saved by taking a stand in the gospel that Paul preaches. Have you? Are you a Christian? That's 
That's the first point. And really, it's all introduction to what I really want to talk about. I need to be really clear about that first point, though, because the next couple of points are for Christians. And if you're not a Christian, then what what you'll be hearing is something that could be yours if you were to work through the first point accurately. I'm going to assume all that now. I'm not going to keep checking back with it to clarify. I'm going to assume that and move on now to the second point. So I'm talking to Christians, people who've taken their stand in the gospel now. I'm going to talk about a part of the saving work of God in our lives. Now, as I said last week, really, you can't divide the whole saving work of God. You can't have one part and not the other. It's a package. But I'm focusing in on on the middle part here. And the second observation is this. A Christian is one who is being sanctified and redeemed by God. A Christian is one who is being sanctified and redeemed by God. I take this from verse 2. It says, The gospel by which you are being saved, not by which you were saved at some point in the past. That, of course, happened. I mean, that's where salvation begins at some point in the past. And, of course, there is a future orientation where we will one day be, be saved. But he's talking about the middle part here, by which you are being saved. It's a, it's a continual, ongoing activity here, the saving. It's like to think of the, the sea and the lifeboat. You're in the lifeboat, you've been saved, and when you get to dry land, you will be saved, but in the middle, you are being saved as you're traveling towards the shore in the boat. I'm talking about that piece right there, the middle section. So, Christ is our righteousness, but he is also, as chapter 1, verse 30 said, been made to be our sanctification and our redemption. Which are words that can be, just like salvation, be used to describe every point in this process. But commonly, we we use them, and I'm going to use them this morning, to talk about this middle piece. Sanctification and redemption. So I'm using them in the middle. Let's think about these two words here. The word sanctify. It's about being set apart, set aside for holiness. And when speaking about sanctification as a lifelong process, what what we mean is the setting apart of a person from the the values, the mindset, the, the affections, the behaviors of the world to the values, the mindset, the behaviors, the affections of Christ. So being changed, being sanctified to become more like Christ. Sanctified. If you, want to, if you want to put one word on that, put the word change. Change. And then redemption, or to redeem, that word's a word from the slave market of that day. Talking about how a title to a slave would be changed from one master to another. And this word describes that process. So if, if you want to put one word on, on redeem, put the word free or freedom. As long as we understand that in a Christian context, we're not being freed from one master to have no master whatsoever. Being freed from one master to have the rule of another good master over us. The word free, freedom. 
A Christian is one who is being changed and is being set free by God. It's not only ongoing, it is passive. God does it. In your life. Right now. And tomorrow and the next day. God is at work in you right now to change you and free you. We aren't the doers of this changing and freeing. And nobody out there in the world, nobody even in the, in the churches, ultimately God is. Now, I want to say we use the, the gifts that God has given us, the people around us, the community for sure. But God is the changer. God is the freer. God is the sanctifier. God is the redeemer. God is the savior. Today, of you, which you and I desperately need because of all of the junk in our lives. And let's be honest. I'm talking to Christians, to the church, and our lives are full of junk. From which we need to be saved while we continue towards the day when we are saved. We need to be really honest about this. Our loving God, this is a, this is a good thing if you think about this. You know, boy, we know that if we were to tear back the covers here off of our lives, just think for a minute about your life. If we tear back the covers, reveal it all, there's all kinds of junk in our lives. And God does not leave you just with this moment of justification where I, I declare you righteous, not guilty in my eyes, and one day I will come back to save you. And in the middle, good luck with all that. The goodness of God for you is that He does not leave you in that, but is committed to, to working right now, today and tomorrow, to change you and to free you. I don't want to be overly dramatic here, but I also don't want to be naive. Think about this. Let us not be... Neither overly dramatic nor... So I'm talking here, when I say junk, I'm talking about, at the same time, At the same time, the person who, the Christian, who struggles with a critical spirit and the person who is in a very strained and broken, let's say, marriage relationship and the person who was sexually abused when they were a little child and still remembers that and struggles with it. That's in the church, okay? I'm talking at the same time about the person who struggles with body image and about the person who is, who is man, just perfectly, wonderfully living the American dream and has everything he wants and is wondering why in the world it leaves him empty, wondering whether there's more. And the person who has a secret pornography addiction. All of that. The junk. And I, 
I swear on a stack of Bibles, if I could peel off the cover, and I put myself out there too, we'd find all of that in this room. Well, I can't swear on a stack of Bibles because I don't for sure know, but I'd bet some money. And I'm not a betting man, so I think I would win. <laughs> right? It's here. And I could, couldn't I list a, a thousand other things? Fill in your own blank. It's here. Thank God that he has not said, well, I have forgiven you for your sin. And in about 80 years, when you die, I will welcome you to me. And in the meantime, man, good luck. Pretty tough being you. I'll check back in a few decades. That's not God. Thank God. But he is you and you and you and you. He is in your life right now to change you and to free you. Which means the junk. Some of it which is your own sin. Some of it which is the sin of other people. Some of it which is the sorrow, the heartbreak of you dealing with the sin of other people. Some of it which is the sin of your own self that's responded to the sin of other people. All of that. Obviously, those things are all so vastly different. Some of them are quite complicated. But please realize, importantly realize, that they are alike and can be simplified and understood in this way. They are all symptoms, not core problems. They are symptoms. We feel and think about and experience all the sins and all the sorrows and all the pains. That's what, that's what strikes us. That's what we notice. But really, they are the displays of something beneath that, of humanity's and of our, of humanity's decoupling from God. That happened on page 2 of your Bible, maybe page 3, depending how it's printed. Very beginning. The decoupling from God, and therefore us all wandering in our own ways and messing everything up. And so then that comes back to my sin or your sin and my suffering under your sin and my sinful response to your sin, etc. Junk. We have switched masters from the very beginning. And so we live separated from the one good, holy, right, perfect master. In bondage to another one. At the cross, yes, absolutely. He redeemed and he broke that bondage. But think of it, if you will, a, a little bit like the, like the unlocking of, a, of a, a cell door. It's unlocked, but it's been closed for a long time. The hinges are rusty and there's all kinds of gunk blowing in the cracks and it's shoving that door open is a bit of a process. He's committed to opening the door. He's unlocked it and he's opening it. Praise God. My purpose here in the second point is to point out there is junk in our lives from which we need to be saved. And I, and I hope that you're filling in the blanks in your own life and you're saying that right there, that is it, oh my. 
the thing I don't tell anybody about, or the thing I tell everybody about, it never goes away. And then to point out something that should be profoundly hope-infusing. God is committed to changing, to freeing. That's what a Christian is, one who is being saved. Right now, today, tomorrow. So, Christian, take heart in that. The salvation of God is big. It happened and it will happen, but praise God, it is happening. He is after you for your good. He will do it. And we must be honest about that, and we've got to create a community that's honest about that. May, may it never be. We are not a people who have arrived and may we never pretend that we are a people who has arrived so the people who haven't arrived don't feel like they can't fit in with us. We've deceived them into thinking that we're there. Let's not be that. Let, let's not be that. But instead, let's pursue the salvation of God together. How does he do that in our lives? Well, that's the third observation. The final, the final point. A Christian is one who is being saved by the gospel in which she stands. A Christian is one who is being saved by the gospel, or to put it actively, if I want to change the verbs, a Christian is one whom God is saving by the gospel in which she stands. The point here is to ask, how? How does God... So, so, God's at work to say the second point. How? Third point. Verse 2 says, You are being saved by God. And if we ask, How is He doing that? There are two expressions, one before and one after it, that point out how. The beginning of the phrase says, By which you're being saved. The, the which, if you trace it back, that's the gospel. The gospel I preached, which you received, the gospel in which you stand, the gospel, by which you're being saved, the gospel. So how does he do it? By the gospel. And the second expression is what follows it. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. And that word I preached, that's the gospel. Back in verse 1. What did he preach? The gospel. So God is saving us. How? By the gospel as we hold fast to it. Not unlike, and I think I have the medical issues straight here, but if not, somebody can straighten me out later. Not, not unlike, we are saved from strep throat by the consistent swallowing of antibiotics. Now, I'm looking at the doctors and nurses to see if I got that wrong. But I think antibiotics apply to strep throat. And if not, you get the point. You take that first dose of medicine, man, you feel a whole lot better, don't you? But you get a 10-day prescription because you're supposed to take all 10 days. And if you don't, it's going to come back with a vengeance. I've done this. Or I take the first day's medicine and think, whew, I can handle it from here on out. And a week later, maybe two weeks, not a good thing. It could take the whole course of treatment. You're, you're saved from it, it, 
and again, don't, don't get lost if I mess up the medical details, but you're saved from this. What does the saving? The drug does. If it was a sugar pill, nothing would happen. It's the drug that does it, but only as I put it in my mouth consistently. Every day. All the way through. I'm saved by the medicine as I take it. I'm saved by the gospel as I take it. And as I hold on to it, as I stand in it and don't let go of it. Which means what, given that this is not literal, of course. What does that mean? Well, given that God's salvation is a whole entity, we, we must not miss the fact that there is, there is a warning here that's talking about the whole salvation process. We, we can't skip that. He is, he is saying something about what genuine faith looks like. Genuine faith does not quit believing. doesn't let go halfway through. It perseveres all the way to the end. You're saved if we find you persevering all the way to the end. So there's a warning there about that. I've spoken a lot about that in other places. I'm just going to summarize it by saying, don't let go. Don't go there. We could say more about that. What we're focusing on here is the middle piece. To talk just about the middle, the, the in this life piece, verse 2 tells us how it is that God changes us away from sinfulness and frees us from our habitual turning to our old master, liberates us from the suffering and the sorrows by the gospel as I hold tightly to it. That's how he does this. As I hold tightly to the message about what God has done in grace in Christ, which right away should tell you that this battle for change and freedom is not primarily fought with my hands. It's not primarily fought with, what is it, prying eyes software? And accountability groups. People sneaking around to find out what I do. It's not primarily fought out there. It is fought in here with a message. Truth. As it comes into my mind and changes me, I know it and the truth sets me free. I'm not saying that there's nothing useful out here. That's just not the primary battleground. It's in here. So think of, of one situation, and obviously I can't touch everything, and I can't touch everything even within this one situation. But suppose, try to put yourself in the situation or identify with it your own junk. Suppose you have suffered under some kind of abuse. Well, past any sort of appropriate police or court action and past the point where the physical danger has ended. So moving past all that, yet here today you still find yourself caught and struggling, trapped with some collection of feelings and thoughts like fear or violation or worthlessness or anger, vengeance, abandonment and betrayal. Some combination of those, maybe others, maybe all of them. You still live right there. 
Yet you're a Christian, you've been forgiven of your own sin, but you still walk through life there. Are you stuck with that package? No. Now, to be honest, this is a fallen world. And there will never be a complete end of suffering. And it will never be like it never happened. Jesus actually said, in this world you will have, not just a little, much trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. It is possible... Paul says it is possible to be rejoicing even while ever sorrowing. The sorrowing does not cease, poof, be gone. But with that, alongside of it, it is possible. We are required. It is possible that you rejoice and that you take heart even with this. So you're not stuck only with this, bound to it, obligated to live under it. You can rejoice and take heart even with that reality in your life. By taking every thought and feeling that you have about that situation, whenever it comes to your mind, by grabbing it, taking it in hand, and submitting it to Christ, your Redeemer. And what what I'm saying right here is the part of if you hold firmly to it, if you stand in it, This is your part that you must act on. It will not be done to you while you sit passively on the couch. Obviously, you can do it on the couch, but there's a a you engaging with this piece. This right here. You take the thoughts when they come to you. You don't let the thoughts instruct you. You instruct the thoughts. You say to it, Why so downcast, O my soul? Not just letting the soul say, I'm downcast. Woe is me. You grab a hold of that and you say, whoa, hold on a second. Why so downcast, oh my soul? I have been abused. I have been wronged. But hold on a minute, soul. Let me stand in the gospel and hold on to this truth. Like this. I am, I am loved with an everlasting love by one who has stepped into this world. Who has come into this world for me. And who so closely identifies with me that he says, when I am afflicted, it is as if he is afflicted. He has borne our infirmities and surely carried our sorrows. Mine. That I know. And I also know that he will exercise perfect justice over this and I need not rage with anger and desire vengeance. I am not permitted to rage with anger and desire vengeance. I'm not the judge. He is. And I need not, I must not, I need not feel abandoned or betrayed because I have one who is stronger than any brother, stronger than any father, and though my mother and my father may abandon me, he never will, never will leave me nor forsake me, has redeemed me and bought me, put me in his hand, and no one can snatch me out of his hand. That much I know. I am not worthless. I am his treasured possession, he says. And say when perhaps self-pity, moping, I mope a lot, moping 
or the chasing of the approval of others, which happens in a bunch of different ways. When that creeps in, oh, I see that as a denial, as a saying to this one, you know, your love and your treasuring of me is not sufficient. I need it somewhere else. Oh, I do not want to do that. Help me. All of that and more is the fight that goes on in here. And it's a fight that you must fight. It will not be fought for you. You must fight that. When the thoughts come, you grab them and you take them and you drag them over to this good news. And you say, what do I know from the good news? What do I know? And what does that say about this stuff? You have to listen to him say to you, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage and to myself and so you are mine and I am good and I am good for you and you are in a good place with me forever. I love you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you to me with loving kindness and my mercy will be new for you tomorrow and the next day and the next day all the way to the end. You've got to listen to him say that, not listen to yourself saying, but this is what has happened to me. I realize, I, I'm, I am completely aware that it is really easy for me to say that standing right here. I've had these kind of conversations with folks sitting down in my study. They're a lot harder there. And they're a whole lot harder for you at home, at night, alone on the couch. I get that. So I'm not saying, not that hard, guys. But I am saying this is the fight. And this is how, by the gospel, God will save you if you hold tight to it. He will. This is the battle. It's how God saves you in this middle period by His grace. It's how God renews your mind. Almost. Because there's one more important piece to point out. All that I just said, if you noticed it, was oriented towards Me, the abused one. Everything that I just said. The sufferer, maybe the sinner. I remember what God says and does and will do for me. I remember His past grace towards me. His present, gracious, merciful love towards me. His promised future eternal grace for me. Marvelous. And it is marvelous. And it should be recalled and it should be reveled in. But that is still me. He loves me. But He loves me. And finally... He shows His love for me by saving me from the love of me. 
Because the basic root problem from page 2 is that I got decoupled from the love of God my Father with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and the love of neighbor as myself and I got connected back to the love of me and I am deeply committed to it. And that is ultimately what God's grace in the gospel aims to free you from. To grab a hold of you and bring you over and show you something, someone who is awesome. Worthy of all of your attention and all of your praise and to free you from significantly this final deepest idolatry. To show you a great God of glory and grace who would come into this world to touch a person even like you. To save one even like me. He would do that. See how it, it works where I see His grace to me, His wonder to me, His love to me. And because He first loves me as I get that, I then love I love because He first loves me. You love because He first loves you. That's the changing, that's the freeing that He is most committed, gloriously, graciously, most committed to do in your life. This is what you were made for, to live enthralled with another. Not with this other, another. He's the only one who can actually fill this hole here. So all of His goodness and all of His grace to you is designed to be a testimony to Him and to point you back. That's what you're made for. That's what Christ was like when He walked the earth. That's what He went to the cross to accomplish. To win your affections to Himself. For your everlasting good. There is something vast on the line in the gospel. If you will stand in it, if you will grab a hold of it and not let go of it and not treat it lightly, not give passing attention to it, you can be drastically changed and significantly freed. It's still a fallen world. You will not be perfect until you are glorified. God in His grace will do much in you right now. Take the gospel in hand. Gather with other people who will also take the gospel truth in hand and will be agents in your life and you and theirs for change and freedom. This is what God wants to do in your life. It's what He sent His Spirit to do in your life. To expose the junk and clean it up by pouring on it the grace of God in Christ.
Let me close with a quotation that I have pinned on my bulletin board, and unfortunately I cannot give proper credit for it because I didn't write down who wrote it, and I've forgotten. But these are not my words. Listen to them and, and think about the following. People change. We could say people are freed, people are saved, people are sanctified, whatever. People change when the Holy Spirit brings the love of God to their hearts through the gospel. People change when they see that they are responsible for what they believe about God. People change when biblical truth becomes more loud and vivid than previous life experience. People change when they have ears to hear and eyes to see what God tells us about Himself. Let me pray. Gracious God, will You give us eyes to see and ears to hear what You are trying to tell us about Yourself. Spirit of God, will You deliver into our open eyes and ears the wonder of Your love for us in Christ who came to die for our sins, was raised back to life that we might know new life. God, will You graciously empower us, bring us under the... the the conviction, the persuasion, and then empower us to walk in this persuasion that we are responsible for what we think about You. We are not to be passive thinkers, but active thinkers. And as we do so, God, would You cause graciously by Your Spirit cause the truth of the Bible to be more important, more vivid, to speak louder to us than our life's experiences. And Father, I ask You to do these things that we would be people who change. I ask You to carry out Your saving work in us right now and tomorrow and the next day. Thank You for the fact that You have saved us. Thank You for the fact that You are going to save us. And thank You for the fact that You are saving us. Do this, I pray, for your glory, for the growth of your church, and in kindness and love to your people. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 
6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.